like I still wear scrubs yeah. uh, ever since the pandemic and I still do. Yeah. Uh, and it usually creates some form of conversation that tends to have some humor attached to it, right? So if if it's, you know, I walked into the clinic a couple weeks ago and the doc's like, why do we let you wear pajamas here? <laughs> it's like, well, let's just be, let's just be clear. I still tell you what to do. And he's like, oh, <laughs> right? Welcome to the Clinician Life Podcast. I'm Emma Jack, and I'm joined by my co-host, Daryl Yardley. And together, we're on a mission to help you elevate your practice to new heights. Join us each week as we bring you invaluable insights from some of the world's leading clinicians. From staying ahead of industry trends to crafting your dream career and life, we've got you covered. Get set to unlock your full potential. Here we go. Yeah, so I, I took I took your advice to heart about being on time. So I did. I moved the meeting up. So I I'm so appreciate late. that. I so appreciate that. We're growing together. Yeah. And you're always <laughs> feedback is a gift. Feedback you, is a gift. Feedback you know is so, a gift. You know what's so funny though about it is I had a 360 review when I was at the hospital. Yeah. And like and and it was interesting, right? Because from a VP perspective, you had to get like a, like a senior leader and then the directors and then okay. the direct reports. And the consistent piece was you are usually late for a meeting, but in my head, I've always been able to orchestrate to be like, well, there was a patient complaint or there was like a family right. complaint because something really bad happened and you're kind of stuck dealing with it. Or you have to go to the unit because there's an irate patient. Right. So I've always been able to justify that there's a reasoning to be late. And then I probably learned it from some of my doc buddies where you're just kind of like always enter the room late. Yes. But there's yes. no excuse in a virtual world to be late. It, I think it's, I hold, I mean, clearly like being on time is, is like, a value of mind. And so mm -hmm. like, that is something I think I put a lot of thought and energy into, and especially in a healthcare space, because so many patients experience lot like waiting and not feeling like their time mm -hmm. is valued. I think I've always sort of taken that on as like something that really matters is that people mm. know that I see them and honor their time. So I think that's something like that's always stuck with me. But mm -hmm. I, yes, there's also that sort of other notion of like, almost like a power dynamic of like, the meeting waits until I arrive. Yeah, like, <laughs> let's just call it what it is. Maybe it's little man syndrome. <laughs> or <laughs> we, can, we can dissect that in a future session. <laughs> We could probably go deep on that, but yeah, like I think it, it's, yeah, it's, it's just interesting how we like, because I do the same thing with like several other, you know, quirks that I have where we are able to like get ourselves, give ourselves justification for why we do mm -hmm. it and, and have that become the norm. Yeah. And I would, I can honestly say too, if I think about clinically, right, like, running clinics with the physicians, right? We're always yeah. fine. 
And, and I don't actually hold them negative to that. Cause sometimes you're like, you have no idea what's about to walk right. into that office. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I met with one of my physician colleagues last night and he's like, I saw 60 people today. I was like, like by yourself. He's like, yeah. <laughs> I, and I was like, oh my God. Cause I probably saw like, 60 people last month. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing too, is that it's everybody that's waited two years to see him. Right. Maybe a little bit yeah. less, like if you had the proper workup, but most of the time they don't. Um, and yes, you still have a resident. You may have a med student. Yes. You may have your fellow, but at the end of the day, you still have to touch base yeah with those patients right so it, it just kind of made me think too is that you know it's not really an in, I think an intended I'm late it's just a matter of you almost just learn to Im- accept it and be prepared to sort of you know explain to a patient why they had to wait three hours for a 12 o'clock right well and it's like such a by that in that case like <clears throat> that's just like such a byproduct of <laughs> oh my gosh system. I'm choking of the public system. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the setup is such that like mm-hmm. no one could be on time in that system. No, no one is going to be able to run on time seeing 60 people. You've once you've seen your first person, you're five minutes late and then it just cycles from there. So it's just like not yeah. setting. I, that's like a larger <laughs> systemic issue. Yeah. And I think it goes back though to what you and I chatted about maybe three, four episodes ago, it was like, how do you elevate the patient experience? So there is a big distinction between the public system and what people would experience when they're paying out of pocket. Insurance aside, I don't really care. Like if you have insurance, you still paid into that. So what are you experiencing when you come through? Um, And I think it, it sort of sets the stage with where, you know, how many emotional chips are in that bank account, right? That Jim Millard always talks about, you know, do you have, to buy you some time in case it is an unpredictable day. But yeah. if you don't have a lot of trust or you haven't really connected well with that patient, that may set that whole 30 minute interaction really off on, not necessarily a bad foot or a negative foot, but you're going to have to earn it. Right. Yeah. And I think acknowledge, like acknowledging it too, yeah. right. Is, is so important. But... Yeah. There's actually one of the things that I learned in the hospital, which I never learned in the private sector, there's actually an apology act. Oh, say yeah. more. Yeah. And it was, I remember I would walk into these, you know, really unbelievable, like things that you would say to me, Joe, you can't make that shit up. And I'm like, it happened. And, and the first thing is that we, like, we actually got trained on, on the patient experience, the family experience side is it's actually not admitting fault. If you apologize, how you do it. And does it come across sincere and, you know, what's that in group environment meeting world looks like. But yeah, it was something that was actually in the patient experience, as well as when you really think about um, the complexity of of case reviews and quality care reviews and quality assurance reviews, especially on the quality care review side, was how do you enact the Apology Act? Hmm. And everybody was always so fearful, right? Because it was like, oh, right. I, that I that I messed up. But the reality is you did. Yeah, it might have been directly related to you, but as an institution or as an organization or as a collective of health providers and leaders, we we did our best, but it had a negative outcome. Yeah, and being able to like detach that from like you as the as a human, like it's not it's not you are bad. It's like this thing that happened was wrong. Mm-hmm. 
right? And being able to detach that, it doesn't affect your sense of worthiness or it doesn't mean anything about you. It means that this very objective thing happened and it was wrong. Yeah. And I think being able to detach from that, because I think so often admitting faults can be seen as like uh, an inner issue. Mm-hmm. There's something wrong with me. And it's just like, no, address the situation. Yeah. And it's it's interesting to you because if you think about, I think we almost try to hide it because we don't want to admit that we made a mistake, right? Or that yes. we don't know, or that, you know, I have a weakness in this aspect of my practice. Um, and it's, and it's almost like if I hide it, it's better. But the reality is, is that eventually it's going to come out. Yes. Or it just goes unspoken and affects that relationship experience, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. And you can get so much further exactly. by bringing voice to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this actually is a really interesting segue into what we want to talk about. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Okay. So and I think we got some feedback from some colleagues of yours too that said they want to see you and I just chat about topics. So we'll do that monthly. So that way, yeah. those that are listening, we'll have a Daryl and Emma session, just the two of us, at least once a month. So yeah. the the one thing I, I, I want to really pick your brain on today is, and we were just chatting about it briefly. So um, at through Preferred Rehab, right, which is where mm-hmm. Waterview is under that umbrella, um, which is my clinic. And then as that collective group, we sponsored a mental health over hockey. Um, kind of a, I don't even really know how, exactly how they did it, but it was really more about development for young athletes, right? So okay. they put on a workshop and it was, it was actually something for me where now that, you know, you're coaching more, you're training more, you really have to think about the, the evolution of the young athlete, especially with everything around yeah. Canada. And oh my Canada, gosh. And, right. So and you can tell is my new uh, coaching attire. <laughs> he's always ready to coach like drop of a hat daryl is ready to be coaching hockey yeah it's like at four o'clock we all have to leave so once we end this we're (laughs) on the road um but what was what was really fascinating was so um two good friends of mine actually they they had they work at a or one of them developed a company called innovate hockey and a lot of their focus besides on ice development is really about developing athletes right? You know, how do you get the right mindset? Like what's their body language look like at the rink, right? Like this stuff's actually really, really important. So what was really interesting though, is they had brought in um, Brady Leable. So he was a past pro hockey player. And I was like, why wouldn't we sponsor this event? Right. It's clear. There's going to be somebody limping in this room, right? Yeah. (laughs) There's going to be crutches somewhere and I will find those. But at the same point though, is, is like, you know, mental health and hockey has become a big, big issue, right? Yeah. So I thought this guy's going to share a story, which was fascinating, right? Just the impact of, you know, mental health and addiction, you know, a pro hockey player that drafted when he was 15 or 16 flies across the country, sort of the, you know, his decline through addiction and mental health issues, homeless, Jill and now completely kind of re rebuilt himself super like super mindful and impressive but what was two things really stuck out for me is is how easy that stuff could go south quickly mm-hmm. um how people hide it 
because it's yeah. almost like a weakness, right? Um, and when he did his rebuild, what two two of the most impressive things for me was how hope actually isn't it's it's super powerful, right? Like yeah. you need to have hope on a regular basis. And then the second part, which is what I posted on the other day, which was vulnerability is strength. And I think too often people from what Brady was sharing is like, you're afraid to sort of reach out for help, right? And I think with a lot of your, you know, the coaching that yeah. you do with people is teaching them that vulnerability is a strength, right? Yeah. So I was curious too, because, you know, my, you know, my, you know, I suppose my days of being a clinician, being an athlete, Men's you're league. still an athlete you're wearing men's, the gear men's league athlete uh, athlete in life <laughs> yeah yeah um, <laughs> you know that's not really been something that's easy for me right yeah. so I'm just curious too is when you think about vulnerability as a strength where do you see challenges Emma with young clinicians or clinicians that you coach where yeah. where's the the struggle for people yeah I mean I think there's I think there's a few places and I think it's all in like varying degrees. I think, you know, what comes up for me first, and I think it's really important to call out when we are talking about vulnerability and sort of safety around showing up authentically and sharing what's happening for you. I think we have to call out even like our privilege, you know, like we are, we are white, we are well-educated, we are cisgender, we are able-bodied. It is fairly safe for us, relatively mm -hmm. speaking, to show up as ourselves in the world. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just, it's, we have to remember that, you know, layer on um, these privileges that are unearned, um, it's easier for us to be vulnerable. And so I think, you know, it, any, any aspect there of, um, you know, whether it's race, gender, um, socioeconomic status, all of those things, it becomes harder to be vulnerable because you may have experienced where it wasn't safe to be you in this world. Um, and unfortunately, that's a reality. And so I think we really have to hold and and know our own privilege and be able to see where we we have unearned um, privilege and where somebody may not be able to show up the same way mm -hmm. um, and and where maybe that hasn't been safe for them. So again, that can also be how you like the household you grew up in and was it safe to share and be yourself in that space? And so I think there can be some like very deep layers to that. Mm -hmm. The other thing I know I struggled with personally was this notion of like professionalism and what that meant and what sort of was socialized to me around what it meant to be professional. And I know for myself, as I was going through school, it was very much like, you don't share yourself, like you're here to serve that person. And like, it was kind of like you were a black box. Nobody got to know anything about you. You were just this like professional robot. And so in that sense, I sort of put on the mask of what I thought a physio should be, mm. even down to like what I wore and, you know, the khaki pants and the polo shirt. <laughs> I was yeah. on that train, I did that. <laughs> Oh, it yeah. looks so good on everybody. And so like even that, like it felt vulnerable to wear 
but I just wanted to wear to work. So mm -hmm. this notion of professionalism and what it meant to be a professional. And I think for, I, I don't want to place this on anyone, but for me, I, especially 12 years ago, I looked very young as a physiotherapist working in a clinic. Most of my clients were older than me. And so many people questioned my age. <laughs> was I like actually qualified to be doing this work? And so I didn't feel safe being me. I had to show up in a way that like was put together and, you know, pretending that I, I was older than I was. So there's lots of masks that we can consciously or unconsciously put on mm -hmm. in order to keep ourselves safe. And, and so it's really looking at where, where are my vulnerabilities and where do, where, what maybe am I uncomfortable with mm -hmm. within myself that I don't feel I can share and why is that? Um, yeah. And I think it's those sort of things where we feel it's unsafe to show up as ourselves, where it's, it, it limits our ability to be vulnerable mm -hmm. yeah and I think it's it's interesting too right because I think that professionalism you learn the deeper meaning of that right because yeah. I think a lot of part of professionalism too is you have to know how to read a room um and it's actually kind of interesting too right because if someone leads a console like if I'm gonna walk into a consult and someone's like whoa you're a lot younger than I thought I'm like mm -hmm. I probably asked them well, how old do you think I am <laughs> right <laughs> Um, and it just, it totally just calms people down. Right. Especially when they're like, I don't even know why I was told to come see you, but on the other side, and it's actually kind of interesting because especially having a PT student or having a young clinician in a consult with me is, and I'll, I'll kind of share a funny story, which I thought was funny, but so I had a young athlete, gamekeeper's done high level volleyball player. She's yeah. 13 or 14. And I've happened to know the family since she was a baby, but she doesn't want to be a physio at all she just wants to know <laughs> i'm only here because i'm waiting for you to tell me that i can go back and start playing volleyball right yeah. and of course i was the guy that said well can't rule out that this may be an avulsion fracture so you're gonna get, get it yeah and you're gonna get an x so anyways long story short good news is, is excellent so daryl 12 plus years ago would never have done this daryl now walks mm -hmm. it through and i'm like so right-handed are you right hand dominant yeah is that your power hand? Yep. Okay, good. Um, and um, how do you wipe your bum with your left hand? <laughs> and she's like, what? I was like, it's a, it's a fair question. Like, is it difficult <laughs> to wipe your bum with your left hand? She's like, no, I'm actually very good with it. So at the end of this consult, like she was laughing. And of course her mom's like in tears. So we came up with a, with a new hashtag, ambidextrous butt wiper. And she told me she was an ambidextrous bum wiper. So we coined this new uh, oh, hashtag. But it was one of those things that, you know, would I have done that if I had that mom in the room? No. But you got this young right. athlete who doesn't want to be there. You got to create a safe space for them as well. Yeah. To also feel like, you know what, I'm going to probably ask a stupid question here, which no question is stupid. But again, yeah. you have that power differential. But again, I'm sure yeah. some from college won't like what I just said. But at the end of the day, <laughs> The reality is, is that you just have to know how to read the room. But if, if I was so professional with that person to the point of just right. staying like a yeah. robot, um, I wouldn't have given them the opportunity to be in a safe space for that. Yeah. I think it's about like, yes, I, and I don't know, like, 
the ability to read a room and read a situation, I don't know how much of that is just like trusting yourself and mm. an experience and how much of that is innate and just like known. Like, I don't know how we develop that skill but i do think it's really really important to know when it is again like i would equate vulnerability with a feeling of safety and so when it is safe mm -hmm. to kind of poke and prod and, and joke around that way and when maybe yeah. it could be taken the wrong way and and mm -hmm. um may have somebody feel you know clam up a little bit and but i do feel like that is such an, an important and necessary area to lean into and mm -hmm. to and and maybe it is you know trying it and getting it wrong sometimes and that's okay that that's actually because i wanted was going to ask you that because jim talked about this too right you know being vulnerable in a situation with a, with a potential client or yeah. who's in front of you and the the interesting part too though is exactly what you and jim and i talked about last week which is like you have to watch that body language change too yeah. Right. To in order to know, you know, or be able to evaluate this, let's let's actually kind of call it safety. Cause you keep using the word and the term, you know, when are you safe? Right. So, but yeah. I think people look at safety as like there's nothing threatening in this room, right? Like I'm safe yes. in my home when I lock my doors. But but I'm gathering that youth kind of define safety different. Emma. So when you think about being in this safe environment. What is it that clinicians need to understand when you, the word safe is not just like, look it up with a yes. That's not what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it is more of like a psychological safety. Mm -hmm. um, it is more people feeling comfortable and not on edge. And that's where you can even, you, I think the body language is a great example. You can see somebody tense up. You can see somebody collapse. You know, they're, they start caving in. You can see changes where people start giving one word answers and and close down on you um or go the other way and open up and i think mm -hmm. those changes are a really good litmus test for how psychologically safe they feel to express themselves in a space because yeah. i think i think too i think when people probably at face value here safe is like oh is this person going to harm me in this assessment or you see it in a right. movie right like we just watched yes. Taylor on netflix right and you just yes you, see, you know these addicts and they're just like screaming at the physician and they're you know they're threatening like that's actually not yes there's a safe component to that but that's not really yeah. what you're talking about and i actually think it's one of those things that's a bit of an imposter syndrome driver too right is that psychologically you just don't feel that you're in a interaction where it's okay if you don't know it's safe to be yourself and and that's why i think imposter syndrome is kind of that sense of where you're like putting on a front and so you truly are an imposter because you're not able to be you yeah. you're not showing up fully as you and that's because something in your environment is telling you you can't mm. yeah and and so yeah, I, I think it's about finding. It's so important that we all have spaces and people that we can be around where we can be ourselves mm -hmm. to really have a see where we're not being ourselves and mm -hmm. where we can lean into being ourselves more in clinic. And for me personally, it just started with like <laughs> truly with wearing different clothes. Mm -hmm. That was like the first way I just started to express who I was a little bit more. 
Mm -hmm. right? And I noticed, ooh, when I'm wearing clothes I like and not my khaki and polo, my energy is a little bit different. And I notice when my energy is a bit different, I'm a little bit more relaxed. And when I'm a little bit more relaxed, I'm a little bit more clear thinking. And when, when I'm more clear thinking, I am mm -hmm. able to problem solve better in the moment. Mm -hmm. And like, it seems like such a small shift, mm -hmm. but changing my clothes made me a better clinician. Yeah. And you know, what's actually another interesting piece too, is I actually feed off of comment more so now. So like I still mm. wear scrubs yeah. um, ever since the pandemic and I still do. Yeah. Um, and it usually creates some form of conversation that tends to have some humor attached to it. Right. So yeah. if, if it's, you know, I walked into the clinic a couple of weeks ago and the doc's like, why do we let you wear pajamas here? <laughs> it's like, well, let's just be, let's just be clear. I still tell you what to do. And he's like, oh, <laughs> right. But on the, but on the flip side that, then you have like, um, you know, you'll see something that's, you can tell it's a, it's a young mom and she's super busy. She's got three, four kids. I can see in the assessment and she's like, you know, and she'll hear that conversation. She'll be like, it looks right. like you're, um, uh, not really dressed professionally. I was like, well, I'm wearing these because I want to reduce the amount of laundry for my wife. And then boom, <laughs> it's like, right. You're typical male jackass. Like, I bet you don't even put these away. And I was like, I don't know. There's like this magic laundry basket that <laughs> oof, everything just goes away. And my wife's like, you saw that on Instagram. I was like, but it just <laughs> creates an environment for people to just relax because yeah. and obviously again, don't say it's the wrong person, but the reality is, is like, the rehab environment isn't that fun, right? Yeah, like, people are coming fun. into it. People typically aren't booking a rehab appointment because they're at their like peak optimal position mm -hmm. in life, right? They're coming yeah. in to see us at a very vulnerable and hard, hard, challenging time in their life. And mm -hmm. so I always think if on both ends of the spectrum, I, I totally hold absolutely. Like I think infusing fun and and levity and humor and lightness is so mm -hmm. important but then also being able to be with people in those really upsetting challenging deeply mm -hmm. emotional moments i think that yeah. you know typically i think just personality wise we all like tend to one area or the other but being able mm -hmm. to be vulnerable in going the other way with people too yeah in, being, being able to sit with somebody and and hold space when they are feeling those emotions and not mm -hmm. want to manipulate that to be anything else. That's right. And and I think the part that's really interesting about what we do is that when people do come at sort of that, you know, that that lower point, right? Where, you know, pain is significant, where they they they're gonna drop, you know, priorities in their life to prioritize rehab. Yeah. But the reality is is once that improvement happens, if they're not in a safe environment, they're not in a fun environment, we don't have the opportunity to take them to that, that next level. They don't even know is really part of what we do, right? Yeah. Preventing reoccurrence, improving their wellness and health and promotion, making sure that they can achieve goals that they didn't think was possible because we really have this talent. But if it's really like cold and medical based, it's like- Sterile. <laughs> I feel good. Like, I'll see you later. But- yeah. You know, when you come in and, you know, you make fun of my pajamas, maybe that's why I don't get any big sponsorship. But but at the end of the day, it's a place where they want to be. And I still remember this, that that um, 
the marketing gentleman that we had seen at private practice section had said to us is just, I want him, I want you to engage with me. So I'm excited to come to your next appointment. Otherwise, yeah. why the hell am I going there? Right. Yeah. And and I think the part that I think we are challenged with to kind of spin this back to kind of our vulnerability as a strength component is the fact that those patients who have probably a more complex past history are hard to manage, right? They may have the simplest condition that we all have studied for years, but what makes them really hard to treat is that they may not be forthcoming with the trauma that has sort of ensued in their past, right? Or they're not comfortable enough to share because you haven't created a safe space for them yet. And that was one thing that Brady Leobold had identified, right? Is I never had the a safe space to talk about what was really going on. Yeah. And that's such a gift we do have like in the the medical field. And I know like obviously I will always hold that is what, you know, mental health therapists and social work and counseling, like mm-hmm. that is, you know, it is outside of our scope to assist people with this stuff. But so often we are the first place that people get some of these stories up and out. Mm-hmm. Um, because we have more time with people, because often, you know, they are in more private spaces. We there is this longer term relationship. Um, you know, how often do people say, oh, man, I feel like you're my therapist, too, because mm. as we're working with them, they're also sharing what's happening in their lives. And I think that's I, that's a relationship I don't take for granted at all. Mm. And I really do think that is a byproduct of sharing a bit of ourselves too. I Mm -hmm. do think we have to share a bit of ourselves in order to have people share back. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and obviously everybody gets to choose what and when and how often they share. But I think, you know, if you feel like you're working with kind of like a PT robot, not as much is going to come up and out than if it's like Mm -hmm. human sitting in front of another human and, and sometimes we have to go first, mm-hmm. you know, um, sharing, you know, I, I suffered a similar injury and I know when I had this injury, I felt this, mm-hmm. you know, that yeah. can open the door. Yeah. And I think it's, and Jim does this so well too, right. And and it's really about being able to validate what people are mm-hmm. saying to you. Right. Or, you know, how Jim would say like, you know, I can, I can sense that that's really difficult for you to share. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Right. Versus I think one of the things that, as you were saying that I used to get so excited. Right. So when someone said, oh, my God, you're the first clinician that ever listened, it was mm-hmm. almost like, yes, move on. But now it was it was it was actually an opportunity to be able to even connect more. But I didn't know that. Then. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think it's OK. To yes, that, totally. Right? Yeah. But now it's a matter of listening to some of the people that you've maybe look up to. And not so much look up based on how many certificates you have, I have, Jim has, right? Is and I love Jim's message, right? Every five years he was reborn. Yeah. I learned something new as a clinician. I think if everybody was vulnerable like that, you would actually see there's a reason why Jim was so strong in his clinical career. There's a reason why that guy had like probably 95% of his patients were word of mouth. Probably a hundred he would cry, yeah. right? <laughs> but it wasn't because of his clinical acumen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it was his ability to connect with people. And he, and you, you could say like, I'll be honest, I've never cried with a patient. 
but Jim has. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this could be a weakness in my career. It's a growth edge. It's yes. a growth edge. And it doesn't have to look like necessarily like, you know, physically crying with somebody, but I think mm-hmm. it's, it's knowing that, Ooh, like that feels that feels a little edgy for me. Why, why hasn't that come out? Why maybe, you know, maybe that's, when was the last time you cried? Um, for me? Yeah. Oh, uh, hmm. it's a good question. Right. So it's like our own comfort with those emotions. We can only really truly hold what we Mm-hmm. you know, have, have, have felt ourselves. And so it's like, I always think it's like opening, opening up our range so mm-hmm. that we have more of a depth under understanding of other people's ranges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's also too, is identifying too, like, I mean, it's may not be necessarily like crying with a patient may never be in my car. Yes. And but... that's like not a sign of it. Like, that's right. <laughs> that's that's right. across of, like check that yeah. box, have a good clinician. Yeah. But it's yeah. like, Friday, it's, it's done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I forced it out. Yeah. yeah. But I think <laughs> Put in the eye drops. But, but you're right. Right. It's, it's, it's trying to identify like, where's that emotional connection. Right. And where's the empathy? Cause I think, I think we're all very good from a sympathy perspective, but yeah. as Jim says to empathy is hard to, I'll be honest. If I could find anyone that could say define empathy right now, that wouldn't go Google it. I'd be impressed. Cause I still, to this day, and even after teaching it for years with Jim, I still will Google it to be like, Oh yeah, that's what, that's what I, right. but it's not so much the definition. It's what you actually present yourself like and you have to be vulnerable in those situations yeah. and and you can't sort of pretend you had that injury and know what people go through yeah right um yeah. so and the one thing too that i thought was incredible right where people start to really get me to think differently especially when vulnerability isn't really my it's not the top of my attribute list right? and i also within that like want to call out too again like societal norms would have it as such as like mm-hmm. men aren't socialized as much to be vulnerable right mm-hmm. there again if we're looking at sort of some some like norms here it's like you suck it up and move on and like you know dust off the dirt and move forward and so yeah. it's not as socialized within you to mm-hmm. be vulnerable, to cry, to show emotion mm-hmm. in that way, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's like not, again, it's not like a personal uh, feeling, right? It's mm-hmm. like, a, can I recognize this within myself and see this as like, again, a mm-hmm. byproduct of a bigger picture, but also see where it could help me just as mm-hmm. Daryl and mm-hmm. then feed forward into your practice. Yeah. And I think too, is it the sort of where people will have those potential barriers for practice, right? Or for making the next step in whatever your career path may look like, right? And one of the things that I think hit home so much on this, you know, this hearing Brady Leavold's story from this event was like, there was multiple tears, like for him to share Mm -hmm. this story. You're just like, you could just tell that you know, when he hit rock bottom, he had a slide rock bottom and it was nothing that I could have imagined. Right. And he went from the sort of like, you know, this kind of way that he presented is like, I was like, you know, I was above the law at this age. I, nothing would bother me. And then boom, he was in that exact same situation where he never thought he would be. Right. And, 
the power though of his story at far exceeded you know watching and be like oh this guy's crying mm. he's so weak right but on the flip side the power of his story was enough to make me go holy shit like this takes a lot of power and strength yeah you get up there pull your life back together still admit that you have you know you still have your own mental health challenges that you still work through on a day of course but calling people out to be better supporters of giving people hope you know putting mental health over you know and put anything like for us in the talk was mental health over hockey right yeah but the part that I had never really followed him up until that point and it was interesting because some of that stuff my kids didn't really like Emerson's only nine so he doesn't right. really know but he got bullying right and for Bianca she got the peer pressure and Bianca's only yeah. 12 so but it was interesting to see what those two picked up and then we started to follow him at all these you know on his mental health over hockey uh or mental health hockey which is his um his Instagram handle and his talent is insane I get it he's a pro hockey player totally get it but his like ridiculous how talent like even for him he's like yeah can you do that I was like no no, no <laughs> like, I, I couldn't do that if I got like the lucky charms like, you made it your full-time job <laughs> yeah. and but it was so funny because what his point was he was like that's that was sort of the presentation that I have but I was actually struggling inside I didn't have a safe space to communicate with people right um and I wasn't going to talk at that age either yeah. And I, I think that is such, I mean, again, zoom out such a common thread across everyone these days is mm -hmm. this focus on outward appearances and mm -hmm. not as much connection and conversation around what's actually happening for people. You know, the day of social media is all about these external appearances. Mm -hmm flashy things when what what does it actually feel like how does it actually feel to be you and I think that's something that I'm talking with a lot of clinicians about right especially mm -hmm. as a young clinician externally I had it all together I mm -hmm. I was crushing it as a new clinician internally it felt absolutely terrible and so I think it's it's really recognizing for anyone who feels like they are the only ones. Mm -hmm. I think we all have an element of that. I think that is, you know, one of mm -hmm. the most normal, most human things is to want to present yourself in a good light. And mm -hmm. it's so normal that everything is not going well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, kind of make it make things up so it's perceived as going well. Right. And then usually shit has to hit the fan and then the conversations start to happen. Right. Well, we need to talk about your caseload. Yeah. We need to talk about, or you're not making enough money. Right. Yeah. Or you just don't like the process in the clinic. Like usually all of that has a deeper meaning. Yeah. Right. And, and I think it can kind of be, I came up with this the other day and it's still not fully formed, but I sometimes think like we almost spur each other on. It's kind of like this like multi-level marketing of our like everything's going fine. It's like once one person pretends it's going fine, that makes everybody else feel like they also need to pretend it's going fine, which makes everybody else feel like. Mm. And if we just, you know, I think as leaders, one of the most important things we can do is be vulnerable in sharing some mm. of the faults, some of the crap. Yeah. Um, mm. and, and this is where... 
you know, so often, whether I'm talking to clinicians or clinic owners, the message is the same. So often they just want to be acknowledged and seen for what they are doing. Mm -hmm. And I think clinic owners so often are like, man, like I am working 12 hour days and bending over backwards to keep everyone happy and nobody's happy. And I'm just trying to keep all the balls in the air. And I'm like, well, if you're pretending everything's fine, they're going to keep asking for these things. Maybe you need to share that you're struggling, right? Same from a clinician perspective of, you know, don't just pretend everything's fine and have it explode one day Mm -hmm. of like, here's everything I hate about this place. (laughs) I think it's important to do both. Yeah. You know, what's interesting in that too, I mean, when you think about it, everybody knew that the pandemic was a shit time. Yeah. Right. So it almost created, and now that I'm thinking about this, it wasn't an excuse to kind of vent it actually created a, probably a level setting to everybody's safe space. Yeah. Like it was okay to be like, I need help here. Like, I don't, I don't have no idea what our policy should be on infection. Prevention yes. Control. yes. And then you had all these like, yeah, you had all these clinicians that stepped up as like a team individuals, people you thought had your back, didn't have your back. Clinic yeah. owners were finally like supporting each other across the guy. Like it was insane. When you think about what really happened, but then we all kind of go back into the regular day-to-day grind again. Like we forgot what we learned there, right? So the thing that I'm curious of too, Emma, is what what do you what advice do you give people to, whether it's the clinic owner who's not, you know, opening up and being vulnerable as well. Um, but we often know is like, you know, we see a clinician, they're present, they, they seem disengaged, they're underperforming, right? You know, everything's you know, takes extra long, or you just see a change in behavior, right? And we typically would say, there must be something else going on, right? Thinking about what's going on at home. How do we support that? But sometimes we find that it's that afterthought, as opposed to remaining proactive. Like, so what do you see in individuals you coach that could you could share with clinic owners to say, like, how do you approach clinicians to know, you yeah. know, how do you how do you get into that world to create a safer place as an employer or even if they're contract doesn't really freaking matter yeah. you're you're in my organization how do you create that to be a safer opportunity to have more meaningful conversations outside of just clinical performance yeah i think i i think what you just said there sort of hit the nail on the head it's so important to have conversations that aren't about business Mm. I think that's like, if you were looking like bare minimum, where to start asking people about their weekend, showing interest in what's Mm. happening in their lives and feeling like you are also sharing what's happening in your life and really, um, opening up about those things. If people only are talking with you in the context of there's a problem, their guard is already up. Yeah. Um, And so getting practice with just having normal, regular human conversations and seeing each other as humans and not as clinic owner clinician. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and again, it it takes me back to our early podcast days where we talked about saying like we have so many early podcast days, aka like six weeks ago. ago. (laughs) But I do think it's impactful enough that we should say early days. But here's what's in it, like look outside of industry. And one of the other things that resonated with me during this talk that Brady started was this puck support. So it's another like Instagram thing. And one of the things that jumps out at me right off the bat was lead with kindness. And I was like, 
it seems so self-explanatory no. <laughs> when you think about it. It sort of just goes to where we are, right? At the end of the day, yes, we have bills to pay, inflation's a pain, it gets super challenging, right? That aside, you really just have to lead with kindness at every fork in the road, right? And I think in those conversations that maybe are more challenging conversations, it's you know, thinking or asking, because we, we, we shouldn't make assumptions, you know, what, what is it that this person needs to hear first, mm -hmm. so that they might be able to open up? Do mm -hmm. they need to hear, you know what, your job is not on the line. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know what, we're not lucky at reducing your hours. We're not yeah. unhappy with you. What, what do they need to hear in order to soften their nervous system <laughs> going mm -hmm. in? conversation and really getting to know that particular person. Some people, you know, don't want a week to think about what they, what needs to be said and, and mm -hmm. you know, giving them a heads up around questions they have. And like, what can you do to give that person psychological safety um, coming into a meeting like that? And what needs to be said in the moment? Something I really practice in terms of a challenging conversation is just calling out exactly how I'm feeling. You know what, I'm, I'm feeling really nervous to tell you this and I don't know why because you have been so accepting of, of feedback in the past, but I'm still nervous. I'm feeling, you know, my chest is a little heavy. My heart's racing a little bit. I just need you to know that, right? Like calling that out disarms people of like, oh, like sh she's not a robot. She's feeling something mm -hmm. here. And it's only yeah. because this is so important to me, like whatever it is, call out what you're feeling. Um, because again, that opens up the other person. You know what? I'm really nervous about this too. <laughs> Isn't this mm -hmm. awkward how we're starting this conversation? You know, that just, even in of itself, just disarms. Um, yeah. I like that. And Emma, what do you think though, like from clinicians you've worked with, like, you know, I don't think I'm really hard to read, but you know, like that wouldn't be my approach initially. I'm going to work on that. Yeah. But when, when does it become a bit fake? You know what I mean? Where all of a sudden it's like, oh, I've heard, I listened to this podcast and I'm going to lead with kindness. I got to really see how everybody's doing. And I'm the guy that's business hat on all the time. I barely talk to people. I see 50 patients in a week, right? And yeah. then all of a sudden I'm like, hey, Emma, how's your weekend? Like, <laughs> how do you kind of get people? Like, cause you can't make it so, you don't want people to see it as fake, right? Yeah. So yeah, what, it, what do you recommend? It has to be genuine. It has to be mm -hmm. genuine. And so that's where it is about finding your own leadership style. You know, that is how I lead. That is my leadership style. But everyone is different and everyone's leadership style is different. And if your leadership style really lends yourself to business, what can you do within your business? It doesn't have to be you. Is there someone you can bring on as your team who is that person, who is sort of the culture or environment liaison, right? Mm -hmm. Look at, I think one of the most important things about leadership is to be vulnerable enough to know where your faults are, where, where you maybe need help yourself. Mm -hmm. That is so much of the work I do is with leaders looking at where are my blind spots and mm -hmm. how do I get support in those so that I'm more well-rounded, right? Yeah. And I love our yeah. own personal development there. Yeah. And I love that you said that too, because in some cases, like this just may not be your zone of genius. Yeah. 
right? But okay. get your shit together and find build that team around you, yes. right? That, you know, and it could be someone like just appoint a culture officer, yes. you know, like in that clinic, right? Like you, you just have to recognize what that organization needs if you're going to be that the leader for that particular like tribe, community, team, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, I think that's good. But I think at the same point, though, you still have to work on that component of leadership and just 1% better weekly, monthly, every year. Like it just depends on what you're striving for. And, uh, and looking at why, like, let's say you are like the business and I'm just, I'm in the numbers and, and getting, reaching my numbers and reaching my mm-hmm. goals. It's like, what is it about knowing my staff more or putting more energy here that makes me uncomfortable? And I'm not saying that means you have to do that. Mm-hmm. But that's like something to get to know. Like, yeah. what is it about that? Why am I so comfortable over here and so uncomfortable mm-hmm. over there? And what could be learned? Yeah. And and the thing too, to think about, like, you know, everyone usually, like, if you think about the clinical world, we tend to all be more comfortable in a one-on-one interaction with a patient, maybe our one-on-one with our staff, one-on-one with our boss, like it, one-on-one, even with sometimes our mentors, yeah. right? Sometimes I think external coaches we're more comfortable with because we're actually usually committed to the fact that I need you to hold me accountable and I'm okay to be outside my comfort zone, but I'm not. I think there's, there's more safety there, right? Mm-hmm. Your job is not like, you're not feeling, I think anytime it's like clinic owner, clinician, there is going to be this element of like, are they going to let me go? <laughs> no matter mm-hmm. how, you know, there is a power dynamic and I think it is different with somebody external. Yeah. And I think the, on the flip side too, is like, is my, is my superstar going to leave? Yeah. Right. Like every clinic owner's worst nightmare. Yes. Right. So, and, and I think too, one of the things that I was thinking about as well, like, especially, you know, coming away from like this outside of industry, like in rehab, it wasn't a rehab conference that we sponsored was thinking too, is like, it put more context to me now thinking about barriers for that individual. So the barriers were always about, oh, can you afford this treatment I'm going to recommend? That's the least of my worries these days. For me is like, do you have the availability? Do you, are, you, are you comfortable to come in here and work through this school? Yeah. Right? Like I'm starting to realize there was more to that, you know, and of course, you know, in this story, Brady had a huge knee injury addicted to opioids and all like the, the usual story that we all know about, but it was listening to that story made me change how I start to interview patients now, or, you know, maybe wrap up my consult. Here's the plan, but let's actually now talk about you. Is this going to work for you? Yeah. And not so much like, does this fit your schedule? Is this yeah, actually- it's less of that superficial yes. level? And like something I ask people on intake and in session and continuously in session is, you know, what do you foresee as holding you back here? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's logistical things. I would say nine times out of 10, it has nothing to do with logistics. Yeah, exactly. But you know, what's interesting, it kind of goes back to the iceberg. The logistic stuff is easy to say, and I can't. A low hanging fruit. Yeah. Or am I, I don't have time to be here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that, even mm -hmm. that, like, I don't have time to be here. It's like, well, tell me more about that. Yes. But you can't do that when you just spit out a treatment plan with the last three to five minutes of your assessment, because that you already should have been picking up those cues throughout. 
So again, it's more, again, I think this is not to scare the shit out of people, but it's the reality of like, you have to go through an unlearning journey, right? Like we learned to do these 20 things for a knee assessment, right? Now to be vulnerable is to learn, you know what? That didn't actually give me any information, right? But be <laughs> do exactly what Jim said last week, face it till you make it, throw up the bullshit around, fake it till you make it. Cause if you fake it till you make it, you're just going to delay your learning in my mind. I love that face piece, but you need to have a safe space in your clinic to actually sit down with people or have a mentor externally that can help you go through that process. Did I skip a corner or did I, did I actually learn a new, a better workflow for that individual case, right? One-on-one care is not personalized care. This is a model, right? Personalized care is about how is this plan tailored and specific to the needs and the expectations and the goals of that particular patient, utilizing the tools that I have. And as you said, too, about recognizing when I need to phone a friend or I need to tap a colleague on the shoulder and really drive interdisciplinary care, right? So I think all those things are so interesting, but how do we get people, and I say this sort of not necessarily like clinician to owner, clinician to mentor, I think all of us should be doing this stuff is how do we get better at going deeper to understand does how does this plan sound for you? Is this plan going to work for you? Did I did I understand everything you know well enough that I presented a plan that seems to meet your needs and expectations? But I can tell you when I present that in boot camp to people, they're like, "What happens if I didn't meet your expectations?" Like, well, then you weren't listening. That's my that's my quick response. <laughs> Probably not the best one, but I was going to say, I think that's an opportunity to ask more questions. Yeah. But in a quick 30 minute, like, well, you got to work with your mentor on that because you do. It's not like there's no good answer. So, so, but I believe this is the vulnerability is like, I don't know how to do that well enough yet, or I want to get better at that, but you have to create a space. So it's not what I just said. And then like, well, Emma, figure it out. Right. I think right. we need, yeah. I, I mean, that's why I think spaces, the more spaces we have where we can like share our shit mm. is important. Yeah. So whether that's again with a trusted colleague, whether that's with a mentor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the beautiful thing about the way we work with people is that often we have a second chance. So Mm -hmm. often you are going to see that person again. And so if you didn't get enough information or you realize after the fact you didn't ask the right question or in the right way, or you didn't go deep on one thing, Mm -hmm. guess what? They're coming next week. I, I, I like to remind people like the subjective should be very ongoing. Mm -hmm. Always. If you, don't put emphasis on that in returning appointments, you're going to miss those bigger details, right? Mm -hmm. You're missing the chance to go deeper every time with somebody and find out Mm -hmm. more of their story. And so, you know, if you present a plan and it doesn't jive, we can come up with a, you know, a short-term solution if you only have a few minutes, but that is your cue next appointment to go deeper on. Mm -hmm. It's really going to work for you here. How do you think we're going to get you to your goals? What do you think that will take? How, what are some of the things that are going to get in the way? Help me understand what your needs are better so that we can together mm-hmm. come up with a plan. Yeah. 
And if you start with that, like that is totally acceptable as a physiotherapy yeah. session and yeah. the most important time spent. Yeah. And I think what's important too is also to preframe it. Like if you don't know right now, that's okay. You and I will figure this out together the next you know, few weeks. You have to right? experiment sometimes, see what mm-hmm. doesn't work. And that's going to give you a better idea of what might. Yeah. And the one thing that I find interesting, and I think probably career-wise as it unfolds a bit and people you know, are sort of coming to a position of like, they they know to come see or they're requesting to see you. They're a little bit more blunt, I think. Like when I think back to the days where it was just a random person that was referred into the clinic, like you, you have to work a lot harder. Whereas now I had a cons, like someone had said to me, I'm coming to see you for my knee, but don't think about taking me off the ice. <laughs> it's like, oh, all right, we've already established. Right. But if I think back to the days of me being a young clinician, I wouldn't have known that. Whereas now I'm like, what's the one thing that, you know, by the end of today's session, that would upset you the most. (laughs) You put, you pull me from work or, and you know, it's that thing too, is, you know, why, if you were unable to participate, you know, if you couldn't go on the ice, what, what, what does that mean to you outside of like, you know, that's, that's income for you. So what else goes on to, cause I want to call out, like, that's the obvious. What am I not understanding? Well, that's when I'm happy. That's, that's what makes me, this is my safe zone, right? This is my zone of genius. This is where I have the most confidence, right? It's so interesting, right? Because I think to kind of summarize as we kind of end our 30 minute session for an hour again. (laughs) 30 30 minute, 60 minute session. (laughs) What do we learn from every interaction, every conference we go to, right? Like every networking session that we talked about before too, right? Is you always got to be, Stop, I think, looking at analyzing people's gates like we all did, right? On the street, a lot of guys got hip away, right? We have to start thinking about what do we hear from people that do talk about a condition, something that's meaningful and important to them, and, and always asking that deeper question, well, tell me a bit more. Do you, would it be okay if I ask you a little bit more about that, sure, right? Yeah. And I think that, again, is not to say that you're not a great clinician if you don't do that, it's just, how's it going to make you an even better clinician when you remain curious, like Karen Elliott talked about, right? And even just using the, the way that you present yourself to get more information out of a patient, because it's going to help you understand them better, but you're very vulnerable in that scenario, right? So I think those are the things that people really need to add to their, their professional development, their growth journey as clinicians is hear what people are saying, actively listen, and then role play. How could you actually add that to your assessment skill? How could you add that to your reevals on a daily or session by session basis? Yeah, I think taking some time to reflect after an encounter is so important to, mm-hmm. to think about, okay, what else do I want to know more about? What am I more curious about? What are maybe some connection points that we have yeah. together? Um, I it's that sort of stuff. And, and yes, of course, it takes that little bit of extra time and a little bit of extra thought and a little bit of extra mm-hmm. presence. Um, but that's sort of the practice we all need. And I think there's no, you know, I've arrived in my vulnerability. I've checked that box. There, there's no yeah. certificate. I think it is a practice and something that you can work on in very small ways and experiment mm-hmm. with in order to, to hone and develop that skill. Yeah. And I think the one thing too, that I wish I want everybody to leave after listening to this with is I used to always think about what tests didn't I do, Mm. right? What, what special tests did I forget? 
right? Oh shit, I forgot to use the J marks any day, subscription. No, I should have been thinking earlier in my career, what is one thing I, I want to be a bit more curious about next time they come in, right? How could I improve the connection just a little bit more, right? Always thinking about that 1%. And I think, you know, when that's hard to do, it's easy and it's safer to ask about, Emma, can we practice that clinical test? Sure, right? We talked about it, but it's hard to say, Emma, can, can, can you and I role play a little bit? So you can give me some feedback on whether I'm actually going to ask, you know, questions that are curious, not too intruding, um, but I'm going to actually establish a stronger connection. Can you give me feedback on that? It's hard. Or right? even, honestly, it doesn't even have to be role play. You can just have a deeper conversation with somebody. Practice having, yeah. I think as a society, we need to practice having deeper, better conversations with each other. Yeah. And so even just going into a conversation with the intention of like, I want to get to know you more, mm -hmm. right? And to like, just practice that. It doesn't even have to be clinical. It's, it is mm -hmm. a skill to, to be able to enter a deeper, more meaningful conversation. And I, I yeah. think that is something mm -hmm. that will serve in and outside of clinic. Yeah, exactly. And I think that comes with vulnerability, right? Cool. So as you said, and as... And as Brady Lebel left me like in awe with that day, which is vulnerability is a strength and you need to be able to uncover that strength. So on that note, until next week. Until next week. All right. Lucky. All right. I'll okay. off, off to the rink. Okay. See ya. Man. See ya. Bye. Talk soon. Bye. And that's all for today. Thanks for tuning into today's episode and joining us on this journey to get smarter in business and life by learning from the top clinicians in the world. Make sure to connect with me on Instagram at Daryl Yardley and be sure to follow my co-host Emma at Press Play Physio to stay connected. And also visit us at clinicianlife.com for more resources, articles, and opportunities to participate in the show. We'd love to have you on to share your expertise and insights with our growing audience. Can't wait to see you next week.